This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anna Funder, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks, Cheryl. Uh, now, these are these are strange times, so we are recording this podcast via Zoom, so bear with us, um, audience and listeners, um, but this will be worth it. I wanted to talk to you, Anna. Um, I know that you don't have a new book out at the moment, but I wanted to talk to you because I thought that you've written a lot about, indirectly, about times like this, um, and very recently you talked about um, what it's like for women. Uh, in circumstances um, of, you know, uh, a pandemic like this one. But firstly, I'm going to introduce you, for those that don't know you, Anna Funder is a writer. Her first book was Stasi Land, and it went on to um, win the Samuel Johnson Prize and was a finalist for the Age Book of the Year Awards. But more importantly, it has become uh, a text, really, for uh, schools and a book that has survived the ages. In actual fact, I've never seen a book backlist so well. Um, and I know that's a bit of in the industry talk, but it continues to sell and sell. Uh, and and that's, I think it's because the topic is, is just always so relevant. So that was nonfiction. Um, and it tells the stories of people who heroically resisted the communist dictatorship of East Germany. Then we had her second book, um, some years later, a fiction novel called All That I Am. And it tells the untold story of four German Jewish anti-Hitler activists forced to flee London. Um, it won the Miles Franklin Prize in 2012 uh, and many other awards. Um, so you're a writer of renown, um, not prolific, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talk to me firstly about your involvement um, just recently where you've been um, involved in uh, talking about women and the pandemic. I was um, part of a, a meeting of a think tank called the Centre for Policy Development, which there was meant to be a lecture given by Megan Davis, who's a professor of uh, human rights and constitutional law. Um, she's also an Indigenous Australian and she was going to be giving the annual lecture for this think tank, the CPD. That had to be cancelled, of course, because of um, measures against COVID. And instead of which we had a Zoom meeting of some people associated with this think tank. I'm not really associated with them, but I was fortunate to be invited to participate uh, everyone was asked to bring an idea to the table about what um, could be done to help the situation in Australia during the pandemic and then also afterwards. The meeting included people like uh, Professor Peter Doherty, who's the Nobel Prize winning virologist, the head of economics for banks, public sector unions, former heads of government departments, Glenn Davis, the former head of Melbourne University, vice chancellor, and so on and so forth. Very, very oh, disability groups, um, all sorts of people, very eminent people. And I 
really had to think long and hard about what I might bring to the table, uh, you know, in a, as a way that a writer could possibly contribute to this. And I was thinking about how the pandemic was affecting my own life and how I was watching it play out. And I could see both a public aspect of it and a private aspect. And in public, I, I have two school-aged children and one at the university. Um, and I could see the extraordinary effort that teachers went to in the space, it seemed to me, of about a week to turn around all their expertise in teaching classrooms and bring it all into the online arena for kids who would then be stuck at home. And it just, it was absolutely jaw-dropping the level of expertise and energy and time that was brought into so rapidly switching that around. And I saw that for my year 10 and for my year five kids. And there was also this nervousness about whether or not I should send these kids to school, whether the schools were going to stay open or not. And so a nervousness, I guess, about those teachers who would be front line in front of a room full of potentially horribly viral uh, children. So I thought about those teachers in that way as the front line of this epidemic, looking after the next generation, working doubly hard and vulnerable to it. And then the schools ended up staying open. They stayed open. Really, we were asked to keep our children home unless we had to work. For instance, if we were involved in frontline health service delivery. When I thought about what that meant in gender terms, uh, upwards of 70% of people involved in frontline health service delivery, nursing staff, orderlies, kitchen staff, uh, medical officers and so on, are female. So it struck me that the schools were staying open with a largely feminised workforce in order to care for the largely feminised workforce also on the front lines in the health sector. So we've got two, to some extent, notoriously feminised and therefore underpaid sectors of society, which turn out in a pandemic to be absolutely crucial to us. They're mm -hmm. crucial to, to society living and to society going forward. Um, so one of my hopes was to recognise the gendered nature of those two incredibly important areas of society in a way that maybe going forward could result in, for instance, the doubling of their pay. <laughs> mm. um, so that was the public aspect of my response. And I'm not in any way, of course, an expert on, you know, gender inequality in the workplace or anything like that. But I'm a, I'm a minor expert on gender inequality in my own workplace and I work at home. So that led me to thinking about what happens when the children stay home from school. So in my own house, I have a very nice, you know, emotionally astute husband who's engaged with his children. However, comma, as many women can say, however, comma, uh, his work was, um, he's fortunate to be in a job where he can work at home. I suppose we should stay that in the first instance. So he went upstairs into a room, closed the door and was at work on Zoom calls essentially all day. While I, who was you point out that I work slowly and don't produce many books, but I do work. <laughs> I do work uh, quite a lot on a variety of other things. And so I work at home and what it meant to have two children suddenly in the same place was that it was almost 
it was actually sort of unspoken that I would be supervising them, helping them with their work, helping them with taking breaks, organizing exercise and organizing food. And I'm speaking from an enormously privileged position where we both still have work to do, we can both do it at home and we have enough money. And still, I noticed in my own life this extraordinary disparity. So even when both spouses are working in the same place at the same time, the woman has not only the double load that most women have of paid work outside or inside the home in my case and running the household, but then also the triple load now of homeschooling, quote unquote, it's not really homeschooling, it's it's an inadequate version of that, but homeschooling children at the same time. So my second point or my contribution in this tiny minor thing I wrote for the CPD was about perhaps because everyone's working at home, men and women with children, it will make more visible in the home the gendered division of labour uh, and therefore the gendered kind of snaffling up of time, of women's time and energy that otherwise is often unseen. So I just did this two very small um, piece of work that was a two-pronged approach saying, I hope that this pandemic results in a change of how we see labour divided in the home and labour rewarded outside of it. Mm. It struck me that it's interesting that in a pandemic, we still have to have the gender conversation. I thought about that just before speaking with you today and I thought it's interesting that even, but then again, we we look at women back in World War One and World War Two in wars and their roles then and now we're having this conversation. It just makes me think when are we, are we ever going to get to a level of equality where <laughs> we don't have to have these conversations? That's just a dream, right? Well, hopefully we will. Um, I think there's a few interesting things to tease out in your question. Um, I think that the issue of world wars is really interesting. One of the speakers in the CPD forum was Ian Golden, who's a professor at Oxford University. It's one of the great pleasures, I guess, of having Zoom meetings is that you can be in the same virtual room as an Oxford professor who's expert on these things. But he was saying uh, we have to treat this pandemic in a sense like a war situation um, uh, in that the whole of society is mobilising in an effort against an enemy of one kind or another. And his hope was that we would come out of this pandemic more in a way as we came out of the Second World War and not out of the First. So the First World War saw countries disappear behind their own borders into nationalism chauvinism and fascism, which then resulted, and partly out of the inequities of the Versailles Treaty against Germany, but those nationalistic, xenophobic, chauvinistic reactions then led into the Second World War pretty directly. Whereas after the Second World War, people, the international community and leaders were so utterly appalled, really, at what had been wrought on humanity that we saw a completely different approach and instead of bleeding Germany dry, bleeding your enemy dry, we saw the Marshall Plan, lots of money pumped into then West Germany and the establishment of of the um, international system um, of kind of governance, so of the United Nations and all of its ancillary bodies to try and have a supranational body that would 
intervene where a nation, for instance, as Germany had mistreated its own citizens so badly. So the last 70 years, we've seen that work in many wonderful ways and also fall short. But that was a fabulous outcome. On the gender front, both world wars saw women working outside of the home in ways that they hadn't previously, most particularly the Second World War, as we know. And that resulted at the time, this is something that I touched on in this um, contribution, that resulted in women working, for instance, in factories, all sorts of manufacturing, as well as armaments factories and so on in Australia and in farms and in all sorts of ways, while there were fewer men to make up that workforce. So the work that women had been doing at home, the work of looking after children and things like cooking meals every day, was collectivised. It was made visible and it was shouldered more publicly. So we saw the establishment of um, creches to look after children and of group kitchens so that if a woman was working in a factory, you could pick up the meal for your family that was made by the canteen at the factory and bring it home. So childcare and cooking and housework were, to some extent, housework were outsourced. And I was wondering whether we might see, just following on from my ideas about that, making this pandemic makes visible uh, inequitable division of labor in the home whether something like that might happen out of out of this i have no idea the second part of your question is whether these in gender based inequalities in terms of the work of care um, and of running homes and looking after for families families and children and old people will ever be more equal look i think that they will have to be. I think that they must be, and I really hope that they will be. My mother was a feminist um, psychologist. She was involved in looking at all kinds of issues to do with women and financial equality. And I would have to say, she died a long time ago, but I would have to say she would probably be surprised in that things have not changed more in my lifetime. Uh, some things have gone backwards, as we know. Um, large numbers of women aged 55 and over are the largest growing cohort of homeless people in Australia, for instance. So they will be differentially impacted by uh, this lockdown, for sure. Domestic violence levels are not abating. The wage gap is not improving. The superannuation gap is not improving. So despite that evidence, I suppose, of the last 30 years, I hope for my daughters, and I've got two of them, and for my son, I suppose, that these things will become more visible and that the load will then be more equitably shared. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
when I look at governments like, say, the Trump government at the moment, um, before this pandemic, I felt that we were going backwards. <laughs> I thought that, you know, um, I mean, he's decimating anything that's ever been in place for women, typically abortion. Um, and it's only just, I think that's only the tip of the iceberg. And what I've been disappointed with is, particularly now, is that there has been no global approach to this pandemic and no global think tank because of the nationalist governments that we've got in place. Like you look at Boris Johnson and, you know, Trump and even here to a certain extent, there isn't, you know, I'd imagine if it were a different time with different leadership that you would have had a more global approach to what was happening. I think it's a very interesting question. This pandemic, um, well, a pandemic by its nature is a global event. Its spread is so rapid because of its virology, but also because of how connected our world is. Um, when you think of the uh, tragic and extreme spread of it in Italy, in Milan, it's because a lot of you know manufacturing, a lot of things that have the cachet of being made in Italy are actually in large part made in China. And then there was an enormous... Um, trade between Wuhan and Milan, where, if you like, the label made in Italy was sewn onto something, but it was essentially made in China. So globalised, which is just an instance of how globalisation has led to um, the spread of this pandemic, and the closing of borders, particularly as we see in island nations like New Zealand and Australia, is a kind of national measure that's taken to counter it. Um, with nationalistic leaders like Trump and Johnson, it remains to be seen how long um, a kind of uh, anti-globalist, if you like, Brexiteer or America first view can prevail after the pandemic subsides uh, without those com countries really um, suffering even more economically if they don't participate in the global system. So I don't, I, I don't have enough expertise to say what's going to happen out of that, except that you're right. It is interesting that we are seeing a kind of more talk about nation states than we have before. Even in Australia, where people are saying we need to be more self-sufficient in manufacturing. So in the first instance of, in, of uh, personal protective equipment and then of, of other things in case something like this happens where we can't rely on international supply chains. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about writing um, and the arts during this time. There's been a, a, a big conversation, particularly here in Australia, about how that they're not being recognised as as part of the workforce and not entitled. They're, they're being made to jump, if you like, through um, hoops to get the same entitlements as regular workers, for instance, like if you work, you know, as a flight attendant or a supermarket or whatever, or a hairdresser or whatever it may be. Um, and I think it's the nature of the arts that, you know, it, they're kind of contract roles, as you would know, and, and small business in a way, isn't it, that you're running your own show. I don't know, I just feel as though it always happens where the arts are slammed in a way, that it's always seen as a disadvantage, yet when we want to be happy and when things are normal, <laughs> what do we go to? The arts. Yes, I think it's um, when we're happy and we want to be normal, we go to the arts. I think that's true. But I also think it's um, at the moment people are 
glued to the news and the news every single night and on every feed, absolutely understandably, is about uh, this COVID-19 pandemic, about its spread, its symptoms, measures against it. You know, now we're talking about this app that people could be downloading onto their phones and so on. And I completely understand that and I participate in it too because we all need to be informed and we have the, to some extent, being informed is all we can do to protect ourselves. It may not be much, but we need to know what's happening. But then we also, I'm I'm finding among my friends and people that I know and in more general, people are really turning to the arts as well. The ones that you can still access like books, uh, people want to read things that are comforting or that are lovely or that bring joy. And I think that just to talk about reading in particular before going more general on the other arts, you know, it really is something that um, connects us in our very isolation. And it does that in normal times and it does that perhaps even more in times like this. So everyone is locked down, but with a book, uh, you know, you're never alone and you're never lonely because you're participating in um, a, a shared sensibility or shared experience with the writer, with the characters, and in some ways with everybody else who's ever read that book, if you ever want to get online about it. So there's enormous comfort and solace from literature And there will be after this pandemic from literature that isn't necessarily about this pandemic, but that takes some of the fears or emotional needs that we see so clearly and expresses them or fulfills them or makes sense of them later. So I think the arts are just even more extraordinarily important than ever. We also see things like, you know, the Philharmonic Orchestra in in Berlin or other orchestras in Australia, putting perform and the opera house as well, putting lots and lots of material where online, where formerly you might be in a darkened room in a theatre with lots of other people communing in that experience or in that piece of music. Uh, you are doing it alone at home, but that very gesture of sending it out to everyone for free and to be accessible is a recognition, I think, of the extraordinary importance of feeling what it is to be human and alive at the same time as those things feel fragile. We feel fragile in our solitude and we feel fragile in our vulnerability to this virus. So I think the arts have been never more important and I think that people can really see it. In terms of being compensated, it is always a juggle, the artistic life. I think in some ways some people think that, you know, artists are birds who just sing, we would sing anyway, we would somehow find scraps of stuff to eat and peck our way through life. The copyright agency has come, came up very quickly with some measures and some money, for instance, to support uh, artists and writers themselves and the Sydney Writers Festival and the making of new work that responds specifically to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm not applying for money. I'm not aware of how difficult that is. I'm completely believe you that it that it would be difficult I wish it were I wish it were otherwise because our sense of what it is to be human in lots of ways depends on artists showing us you know yeah absolutely I mean I agree with everything you say I mean I have you know um and I know we've talked about this I have in a big way turned to to reading particularly short stories that's all I can 
that's what I'm enjoying so thoroughly at the moment. Um, But also, too, I want to support um, bookshops as well because they've been um, really suffering, as many other retailers have. I've got to tell you, I've been so impressed. Um, I don't know what your local bookstore is, but, you know, mine's up the road um, at Leichhardt and I, I needed some books yesterday. I just phoned up and ordered them and then I walked up and picked them up and there they were. They were handed to me through the door and I just thought, you know, they're so fantastic, so resilient, problem solvers, and I'm in awe of them. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. I mean, there are a lot of people to be in awe of at this moment. So, so many. When I think about the health workers and people Mm. in hospitals or people at checkouts in supermarkets, uh, so uh, GPs, you know, teachers, so many people and, and and bookshops as well. So many people have really, I don't know, they're so, even people who collect the, the rubbish and people who are fixing the park down the road and really people who just keep going. I, yeah. I think it's, it's amazing. And yes, bookstores. Bookstores have had so much to contend with in the last 10 or 15 years, I suppose, that they're, they're really... Um, I don't know, I think they can probably do anything, those people. They really are, particularly Australian bookstores. I mean, you, you'll know this because in New York, I don't know how well the independent bookstore survived. But in Australia, they've been quite tenacious. And I think maybe we have as well as readers and demanding that, we you know, we have a local bookstore. I mean, we have lost a lot, but nowhere near as much as, say, uh, the US and the UK. And I think that says a lot about Australians. Yeah, I think it does. I think it absolutely does. We want to go and talk to someone. And there are so many really fantastic booksellers who are charismatic, incredibly well-read characters, you know, and people want to go and see them and they want the recommendation and they want the conversation. Yeah, they Um, do. And they're quite passionate. Okay. I want to go back to Stasi Land. And uh, for those that haven't read it, I think we talked about the fact that it was, it's a nonfiction book about the communist dictatorship of East Germany and of the people who worked for it, like the secret police, the Stasi. Now, well, part of that book was really um, talking about uh, surveillance and, you know, people losing um, uh, their freedom, if you like. Um, and I'm wondering if, there's, if that is something that we are heading towards. There's talk about us being surveilled. But, you know, I mean, I guess we've been uh, surveilled for a long time, ever since we've got the iPhone. I don't know how many years that has been. But it seems to be to another level at the moment, um, intervention from government, intervention from police. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Yes, that's again another really good question. I think there's a few things to say about that. So the surveillance society in East Germany was completely different because that was a dictatorship with no free press whatsoever. So on one level, the only way the government could find out what people were thinking was to invade their privacy and read their diaries and uh, sneak into their houses or arrest them and interrogate them. That's not the situation that we're dealing with now. The next thing I would say is that we have already let uh, Google and the other tech titans effectively walk into our diaries by letting them read our email. So all of our email, for instance, is possibly uh, is definitely able to be read by Google and possibly being read by Google. So we have already given up uh, only for the trade-off is the trade-off of our privacy having been invaded in that way is uh, tailored advertising. 
yeah, in, yeah. A, in an algorithm. So we were never asked whether we wanted to give away all those data points for free or whether we want to be tracked, our every movement on the internet to be tracked or whether we actually want ads coming up all the time that say, in my case, you know, woman 50-something, <laughs> this is what you could do to sort yourself out. Um, or even with my birth date in them sometimes, which I completely resent. So people have voluntarily in this new age and governments have given up that privacy and governments have allowed internationally these massive five group of tech titans to invade our privacy, steal our data, not pay tax in Australia and get away with it. So that's the other thing I would say. The specific issue of the app going onto phones, I have no more information about that than anybody else from just listening to the news and so on. But weirdly, my experience of um, meeting lots of Stasi men and spies and then meeting these really heroic people who refused to betray people around them and refused to become informers at their great cost has not sensitised me to this at all or enough. Um, it sensitised me to Google. It doesn't sensitise me to this government, which I think in general there's been a fantastic bipartisan effort in Australia and an effort um, from um, so both parties and across federal and state to deal with this. I think there have been a couple of mistakes, but really a very good effort, massive amount of um, money thrown at this, as you say, not reaching artists and so on. But really I'm so admiring of all of these very, very difficult decisions and how they've been made on the basis of scientific advice, unlike in, say, America, and of how we and of the support that's been thrown at it. The idea of an app to me on my phone is fine in a democracy as long as I know how the information is being encrypted, who it's being sent to, and I have access to having it dissolved at the end, and I know that that will happen. I'm perfectly happy to be tracked on my phone if in six days' time I come down with the virus. I feel like anybody who's been in contact with me over the period where I didn't know I was infectious uh, and before should be contacted. And if that giving up that little bit of my privacy means that kids could go back to school, say, or other people could get their jobs back who are suffering um, unemployment, I'm really, that seems like a very small thing for me to do. Yeah. That's a nice segue into what I, I want to know and and you're not going to know this, but I need you to have a view about it. Do you think that we will come out differently? Do you think it will be the same place? Do you do we just, you know, in three, four, five, six months just open the door, walk outside and nothing has changed? I don't think so. I think things will have changed. Um, and I think a lot of people are suffering a great deal at the moment. Um, but I tend to try and focus on things that I feel will change for the better in the long term once that immediate suffering and anxiety uh, and illness and bereavement are over. What's really absolutely clear is how, uh, how much we rely on one another for company, joy, solace, sanity, how much the many, many ways in which people get together 
in workplaces, in parks, in sporting groups, at arts events, are the things that are the important stuff of our life. Other people are what make life worth living. And I think that sense of the preciousness of everybody to one another will remain. And then how that of course we should have thought that before and some of us did and we think it obviously about people we're close to and our children but I think that this really broad-based sense of how precious we all are just linked in our communities our neighbors will play itself out over the long term will mark this generation will mark me will mark my kids and I feel like good things will come out of that Mm. I like your optimism. That's lovely. So we're going to finish off, but I just want to ask you, are you working on something else at the moment? And I didn't mean to say that (laughs) I wasn't at all insinuating that you don't work. I know you work very hard and I always enjoy reading what I get. Um, But are you working on something now? I am. um, I'm working on a... um, I, I, w- I would say, you know, I wish I'd written 10 books, um, but I haven't. Um, I... Uh, which may have something to do with the division of labour in my home and three children, may have something to do with that, Um, although it may have other reasons as well. I'm working on a little feminist book, unsurprisingly, given what I've just been talking about, uh, which is really my attempt for myself to have a look at these, at the ways in which women's work is either made invisible or taken for granted or massively underpaid. I'm doing it as, you know, as a, as a writer and not in any way as an expert. There are lots of other people who are measuring the contribution, for instance, that women make to GDP that's unacknowledged and so on. I'm just looking at, as it were, the sort of psychological ways in which even I am blind to some of the things that I do and to how that is important to keep the lives of other people around me going and the household going, but uh, kind of goes unsaid or unspoken. And I think this is my tiny attempt. So my mother had her career and her work. This is my little tiny attempt for my daughters to say, okay, this is what I think about this. I'm going to put this book I mean, obviously it's going to be published, but they don't read my books, thank goodness. They haven't had to. Um, I'm going to put this book kind of in a locked case. If in 20 years' time things haven't changed enough, you can break the seal, pull the alarm and have a read. (laughs) And then maybe some of the ways in which your work is being made invisible or undervalued um, will be clearer to you and you can use this as the first rung on a ladder to escape the situation. I hope you never need it. I hope they never read it. Anyway, it's for me and for women perhaps of, of my generation and for men as well because they benefit from all the work that we do and if they can't see it, they can't thank us for it. No, absolutely. Well, Anna Funder, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. You've been very generous with me and I really appreciate it. Um, Such a pleasure. Thanks, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store.
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.